0: So a few years ago, uh, my friend Sarah suggested that I interview this guy named Thomas Graham. I wasn't too familiar with him at the time, though I think I read some of his stuff and some Russian commentary or analysis that he did. Um, Also, the fact that Tom was a former uh, Bush administration official was somewhat intimidating. You know, I, I figured anyone who worked for a presidential administration was too much of a big shot for my, you know, little podcast. Even though Sarah told me at the time that Tom was a really nice and personable guy. And I did actually end up interviewing Tom last summer, but it wasn't for the SRB podcast. Um, It was for a podcast series I did with Fyodor Lukyanov called Geopolitics on the Move, which was sponsored by the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Uh, In that interview, Tom talked about the UN after 75 years and uh, what role it plays in today's geopolitical order. I'll put a link to that interview on the post for this podcast on the SRB website, or you can search Geopolitics on the Move on your favorite podcast app.
1: So, Sean, how did this interview with Tom come about then, the one you have today?
0: Basically, it came about somewhat by chance. Um, A colleague at Reese asked if I would recommend somebody to interview on the US-Russia-China nexus uh, for the virtual conference on global politics which was a one day symposium for community college professors. And Tom was one of the people on my short list for that. So this interview that you're about to hear was conducted on April 16th, so a few weeks ago, as part of the virtual conference on global geopolitics, the United States, Russia, and China after 2020. And this conference was organized by the International Studies Consortium of Georgia and sponsored by REES at the University of Pittsburgh and Reinhardt University. Uh, I should also say that this interview with Tom is the first of two interviews I did that day. Uh, Next week's podcast will feature the second, which is a conversation with Andrei Tsikonkov, who is a specialist in Russian foreign policy uh, from San Francisco State University about U.S.-Russia relations in particular.
1: So in today's episode, you and Tom, you cover a lot of Cold War history, but you also talk quite a bit about the events of this past week with the Biden administration, um, with their new foreign policy, and then a little bit about the U.S.'s relationship to Venezuela. Um, I'm wondering if you can just give a little bit of context or background for this conversation.
0: Sure. So I think a week before I did this interview with Tom Graham, uh, there had been a lot of developments with us-russia relations now granted uh for the last several years us-russia relations have been at a low point and that point seems to just get lower and lower as the time goes by um but there was a series of biden announced a series of sanctions on russia for this the uh, cyber attacks of course there's the lingering problem of the russian involvement or interference in the 2016 presidential election uh, the poisoning and then subsequent jailing of Russian oppositionist Alexei Navalny. Um, and, and then, of course, a general discussion in foreign policy circles in the United States, but also in media in the United States around uh, a Cold War, not only with Russia, but an emerging Cold War with China. So this interview with, with Tom is, is good because it tries to deal with or at least discuss some of the issues of this geopolitical triangle, as he calls it. Um, so that, that's basically the context. Um, now you listen, the listeners out there might notice there's a, there's another voice, um, on, on the podcast this week. And, uh, I'd like to introduce Amelia Pilar, who, uh, is an intern. Um, she's going to be interning for the SRB podcast over the next two months. Uh, this represents, a, uh, some of the new directions I'm trying to do with the podcast and she provides a lot of help and advice and she is the recipient of the Association for Slavic East European and Eurasian Studies internship grant so she's also getting paid so even better
1: (laughs) thanks so much for the intro Sean I am really excited to be working with you in the SRB podcast for the next couple of months this summer
0: So, hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. Every week we deal with um, Eurasian politics, culture, and history, as you well know. And this podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And members of the SRB table of ranks who give generous support every month to keep this podcast going. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and uh, join the table of ranks. So Thomas Graham has a very long resume, um, and I'll only mention a few things in his his biography. So he's currently the managing director at Kissinger Associates Incorporated, where he focuses on Russian and Eurasian affairs. He was a special assistant to President George W. Bush and senior director for Russian and National Security Council staff from 2004 to 2007, and director for Russian affairs on that staff from 2002 to 2004. Uh, From 2001 to 2002, he served as an associate director of the policy planning staff of the U.S. State Department. And Tom also has a diplomatic career. From 1984 to 1998, he was a foreign service officer, mainly serving in the embassy in Moscow. So here's Thomas
1: Graham.
0: so Thomas, it's nice to talk to you um, <clears throat> as always. I think this is the second time I'm interviewing you, but we've we've I've heard you speak on a number of occasions and other uh, formats that we're part of. Um so besides the the lengthy lengthy um, biography that Raj read out, um I'd like to have you talk about not necessarily your, your you know many titles and things and what you do but really like how i'm curious in, in a personal way how you came to uh you know do what you do in terms of your interests in russia and now you you're more you seem to be more focused on on china
2: uh, thank you very much sean and, and first i'd like to, to thank raj and all the his colleagues at the georgia uh, consortium uh, for uh, for hosting this event this workshop it's a very timely topic uh, russia uh, China and the United States are the, the three most active geopolitical actors on the stage today, and obviously the way they interact is going to have tremendous consequences uh, for, for us, for the, for the world over the next decade. also like to, to thank the, the Center for Russian, East European, and Euro, Eurasian Affairs uh, at the University of Pittsburgh for, for hosting this podcast, and it's a real pleasure to be with you. Now, I'll date myself by, by telling you how I got uh, in, uh, interested in uh, in Russian affairs, uh, Sino-Russian affairs. It's actually the Sputnik from 1957. Uh, my first memory was growing up uh, uh, just outside of New York City. Uh, and I remember the Sputnik lunch uh, very, very vividly. Certainly, all the whispering among my, my parents and their friends about what this meant, about the United States falling behind, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, where were we, why did this happen, and so forth. And so that piqued my interest. I was also fortunate enough to go to one of the first high schools in the United States, in Princeton, New Jersey, that offered Russian as a foreign language. Uh, so in the early 1960s, uh, I started learning Russian. Uh, you know, I like to say that I started learning uh, Russian at a younger age than the former president of, of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev. Uh, he obviously has made a much, much more progress over the past uh, 40 or 50 years than I have. Um, so we had that. And then we also had the opening up of the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, At this point, we had our first exchange programs. Um, there were many, many students who came back, began to write uh, articles about, books about their experiences in the Soviet Union. Uh, so there was a lot uh, to, to read, a lot to, to think about at that time. Uh, and then this process just continued through my uh, through my education at, at Yale. Russian studies as a major at that time. I continued to, to work on this at, uh, in my doctoral program at Her- Harvard University. Uh, and then finally, uh, in, in 1983, I joined the, uh, the US government uh, in the Foreign Service uh, and was fortunate enough to have two tours of duty at our embassy in Moscow, one at the very end of the, of the Cold War, 1987 to 1990, uh, where I like to say that I, I brought down the Soviet Union Obviously, obviously I had a lot of help from the Russian people themselves and then I went back in the the middle of the 1990s uh, to to head the the political uh, internal unit, also acting political counselor at the embassy uh, in in, in Russia and and was responsible for all the reporting that went back to Washington on political affairs, domestic political, foreign policy, military political affairs and so forth. Uh, and then I sort of capped the career in the uh, in, in the U.S. government with the five years in the National Security Council staff, uh, working in the George uh, W. Bush administration, uh, the person who was responsible for coordinating Russia policy uh, across the across the government. So, uh, to some extent, I bear some responsibility for the evolution of us-russian affairs and for the poor state that they have today and i'm more than happy to talk about that so that's really how i got to this point
0: well you do i mean you are a a creature of the cold war then um you're 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 you know educated and reared and also served during this incredible moment of the late 20th century but also the 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 immediate post-soviet period And, of course, working in a presidential administration, I would imagine, gives you a whole different experience and view on on things, on international relations. So, when you look at the situation today in terms of the the American-Chinese-Russian geopolitical triangle, how do you look at it today and reflect back to your experience? And how does that experience help you understand, or maybe even if you want to do some self-criticism, misunderstand the current situation?
2: (laughs) Well, uh, let me make a fundamental point, uh, and that is that I, you know, I don't think that the, the US government pays enough attention to this triangle. Uh, and in fact, you know, what my experience in government over, for 20 years sort of underscores uh, is the reasons why that is the case. So uh, if you think about Russia, uh, for most of the post-Soviet period, we've always thought of Russia through the European prism. Russia has the, the power uh, that creates problems for us. Um, on a a range of issues that are European related or at most the Middle East. So we have a Ukrainian problem today. What's behind that? Well, Russia is a big part of that. Uh, We're concerned about Russia uh, in in the Middle East, particularly in Syria, uh, the support that it might offer for Iran. But despite the fact that Russia has this vast territory uh, in Asia, uh, we haven't thought seriously about Russia as a player in the East Asian uh, arena. since, I would argue, the the end of the Cold War. Uh, So that uh, is one thing uh, that struck me uh, in my years in government. The second, uh, again, a reason why we don't pay enough attention to the triangle is that we tend to uh, work Russia and China in bureaucratic silos uh, in the government. So Russia is connected with Europe. Uh, China is connected uh, with East Asia and the Pacific region. Uh, There's not a lot of communication uh, between the people who deal with Russia and the people who deal with China. Uh, uh, and so it tends to get uh, neglected. Uh, when I was at the National Security Council, one of the things that I tried to do is to get the uh, the Russia experts to talk to the China experts uh, and to do that across the, the government uh, really didn't have much success. Uh, so that I think has been a, a, a real problem. So to put it uh, in, in short, we don't focus enough on this. Uh, on this problem. And I think that continues uh, up to the present moment.
0: Let me, let me ask, that's really, uh, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be su- too surprised, but considering all of the, you know, the talk of Eurasia in the last, increasingly in the last 20 years, you you don't have a, a this and the, and the policy and within government where these the, a, a, there is a Eurasian contingent. And if there is a Eurasian contingent, then what does it consist of?
2: Well, you know, when we think of Eurasia uh, in the US government, it's largely the former Soviet space, right? So the, uh, the, uh, the 12 republics plus the Baltics, that's what you always put in a different category. And interestingly enough, uh, Russia uh, and Eurasia as a whole have always been linked to uh, to Europe. So if you look at the, the structure of the State Department, uh, is we have a Bureau of European and East Asian Affairs, uh, right? Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and the others are uh, within that bureau. Uh, now that has broken up, uh, and they put uh, Central Asia now with South Asia. But for the longest time, it was really focused towards Europe. So again, you know, part of the problem that we've had, and then you know, this is beginning to shift because of the growing importance of China, uh, is that the State Department itself uh, was built around the European. Uh, European. Bureau. That was the focus of our foreign policy for the longest time. The The real center of global politics. Certainly that was true during uh, during the Cold War. But that's beginning to shift. Uh, and we'll, it'll be interesting to see if with this shift, eventually we begin to see Russia through that prism to much greater extent than we have up to this point.
0: So, you know, in in the press and and even in some um, some policy writings, um, we hear a lot of a, a new about a new cold war. And again, you you came up through the cold war, so I I, I think you'd be a good person to re- do a comparison or recognize if there's a cold war or not. But nevertheless, we hear it more and more between U.S. and Russia. There's tons of books written about this already. But also, we're hearing it more and more in regard to China. Um, do you think the the cold war is a helpful framework to understand this geopolitical triangle today?
2: Well, I would put it this way, wrong diagnosis, wrong prescription. Right, right. So let's remember what the Cold War was, uh, You know, the, the, the original version of this. Uh, this was a global geopolitical existential bistru- bipolar contest between the United States and the Soviet Union. We espoused different worldviews, diametrically opposed, uh, there was a very little uh, economic inter, uh, exchange between what we called the, uh, the free world uh, and the socialist camp at that point of the Soviet bloc. Um, and that was, uh, and, you know, overshadowing all of this, of course, was the nuclear weapons, this threat of uh, nuclear annihilation, which exercised a great deal of, uh, of thinking in Washington and in Moscow at that point. Now, what's the world look like today? Uh, you know, uh, people will argue about the exact structure of the, the global environment today, but clearly it's not bipolar. Um, you know, there are many, many different centers uh, of power, at both the global level and the regional level. So to some extent, it's both bipolar. It's globalized. Uh, there is this close interconnection uh, between the economies, certainly the United States. Uh, and China China's our most important trading partner the world is interconnected in a way it wasn't during the Cold War because of the internet other forms of uh, of communication and we don't have this stark ideological uh, divide that we had at this point you know if there's a d- division between the United States and China yes you can call it democracy uh, versus autocracy um, is there an autocratic international uh, today, the way a Not really. You know, China is a country uh, that is really driven by nationalism. Uh, and it's very difficult to universalize nationalism and turn it into a, uh, an ideology that you're going to spread around the globe. Uh, so the, the nature of the, the competition between us and the Chinese, between us and the Russians, is different. And, that, and if you go back to the Cold War, you come up with the wrong prescription. The Cold War was containment. Uh, This is the policy that we pursued for uh, 40 years, eventually led to success uh, in the the struggle with communism, with the Soviet Union. Um, Today, containment doesn't work. The the world is globalized. One of the problems we have uh, with our sanctions policy towards Russia today, uh, and some of this has been in the news uh, recently because of what the president did yesterday. you know, we try to isolate Russia, but how do you isolate Russia if China and India, two of the biggest economies in the world, aren't prepared to isolate Russia? So containment doesn't work. You need to have a, uh, a, a different type of approach uh, that combines sort of uh, resistance and accommodation, uh, some f- form of coexistence, if we're going to be able to manage what is a very difficult geopolitical environment at this point.
0: What what how do you explain then this continuing framework of the Cold War? Because as you say, there's no ideological struggle. There's no real, you know, different economic systems, uh, systems of development being put forward. Um, It's a it's a it's a more net decentralized um, power structure in the world in terms of there is more regional powers. There's multipolar powers. Uh, yet there's a, there's an effort to, you know, come up with new ideological divisions like, you know, authoritarian, authoritarianism versus democracy and this stuff. Why does, why does the cold war continue to, you know, frame a lot of thinking towards this, this, these new challenges?
2: Right. I mean, that's a good question. Uh, and there are a number of angles here. I mean, first it's something that we know, right. Um, uh. You know, many of the people in the senior levels of government had some experience uh, during the Cold War. Uh, it's also a, a, you know, as we look back at this, although people tend to uh, forget the ups and downs of the Cold War, it looks like a successful uh, U.S. foreign policy. Let's take what worked uh, and, and apply it uh, uh, to the, the current situation. You know, the old uh, uh, joke about the, the the fact that if you had a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So here's a successful policy. Let's see if we can make it fit to the, um, to the current environment. But I think there's also a deeper reason why uh, we tend towards the Cold War. Uh, and that grows out of the way the United States has conducted its foreign policy, the way it's framed its foreign policy, uh, I would argue since the, uh, since the since the Second World War, through the Cold War, up to the current period. So the United States, uh, has always tried to identify what we would call the main threat, the main enemy, right? So during the, um, uh, during the Second World War, it was Nazi Germany, Imperial J- Japan, these two uh, great fascist powers. During the Cold War, it was the communist uh, Soviet Union. Uh, you know, after that, the administration that I worked in uh, tried to turn international terrorism into that main threat. Uh, and then I think, so now we need a main threat. was the main threat, the Chinese. The other thing about it is that when we thought about the world in that way, it also uh, allowed us to come up with a guiding principle that sort of framed our entire foreign policy. So during the Second World War, it was unconditional surrender, Uh, and the rest of the foreign policy flowed through that one goal that we were trying to pursue uh, vis-a-vis the fascist powers. The Cold War, its containment, uh, with the Uh, international terrorism. It was the Bush administration's freedom agenda. Uh, And now you see uh, people uh, grappling uh, with the identification of a main enemy, a main threat we have, that's China. Uh, And pretty soon we're gonna have to come up with a guiding principle uh, that is gonna shape the the way we think about all other aspects of our foreign policy going forward. Uh, Part of this, I think, is going to be an effort to, to draw this division between autocracy Uh, and democracy president biden is uh is contemplating calling for a summit of democracies to sort of rally what will be the new free world
0: (laughs) right right, exactly
2: against uh, against this rising authoritarian threat led by the chinese
0: so this brings a question then considering that you know um us-russia relations are at a at a low point um especially you know as yesterday's events point to uh, and of course, there's the the China as a, a new enemy for the twenty first century. Um, but the the Ch- Chinese foreign policy and Russian foreign policy, it seems to me, don't work through this kind of this kind of prism. They they tend to be able to juggle various different regional and international interests. So how would you how would you characterize their foreign policies vis a vis the the American?
2: You know, that's a very good question. Um, you know. Obviously, they,
0: there's certain things that they hold in common.
2: Um, you know, they both believe that, uh, uh, that the United States should not be allowed to dominate uh, the global environment. Uh, so they always push back about this U.S. leadership, uh, American exceptionalism. Uh, you know, we are major players on the global uh, stage as well. Uh, we need to have our voices heard, our interests taken into account. And oh, by the way, we have the means to do that. Uh, the Chinese are certainly uh, have been much more aggressive and assertive in the way uh, they've promoted their interest over the past I would argue decade. Uh, dating back to the, the financial collapse in two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine, uh, when they thought uh, you know what happened had demonstrated the uh, the failings of the Western liberal capitalist system, uh, they had something better to offer. Uh, you know the Russians sort of the same same thing. Uh, they also, Uh, are not as bound by, um, I I guess the appropriate term is ideology. They're prepared to deal with all countries, um, no matter what their internal regimes are, uh, as long as they can derive some uh, geopolitical, commercial, economic advantage from that. Um, So uh, they seek out opportunities uh, where uh, the United States may be in uh, in an awkward position to try to exploit that for their own advantage. So it's a much more flexible, uh, at least on the Chinese uh, part, a much more flexible approach than you would see uh, from uh, from an American administration.
0: Now, of course, Russia and China have long relationships with each other, um, deep historical ties. But more recently, there there seems to be particularly over the the development of Siberia and the one road uh, policy of of China. So what what are some of the broad issues that characterize Sino-Russian relations?
2: Well, you have a, a number of things. We've already talked about one. Uh, this is the worldview uh, issue of a multipolar world uh, resistance to what they would uh, they see as an American effort to, um, uh, to create a, a US, U.S. hegemony, a U.S.-led uh, international order. Uh, they're opposed to that. Second, uh, if you look at the, this relationship, there's a tremendous complementarity between their two economies. Uh, You just mentioned Siberia. Siberia is a treasure trove of of resources, not only uh, in Russia, but in the entire world. Uh, China has an increasing appetite for natural resources because of this robust uh, economic growth. Uh, They are, in addition to uh, what we would call authoritarian states, I think a uh, a good definition. That draws them together. And then, of course, and Raj mentioned this in the uh, in his remarks earlier uh, today, you have this uh, very close personal relationship between President Putin and President Xi Jinping. Uh, they have met over 30 times in the past uh, five, six, seven years. Um, tremendous interaction, the, the chemistry seems to be good. And so those things tend to bind these two countries together. You add to that the pressure that both are experienced from the United States, and you see reasons uh, for this strategic alignment today. Now. I think it's also clear uh, that there are a number of sort of layers of, of tension in this relationship. They have a long history. It hasn't always been a happy history. Uh, you know, the Chinese remember back to the, uh, the, uh, the 19th century, the century of humiliation that they talk about uh, where European powers carved up zones of influence, spheres of influence in China, uh, a, a period of humiliation uh, the Chinese would call. Well, the Russians did that. Uh, Vladivostok, um, the the uh, headquarters of the Russian Pacific Fleet, uh, was seized from from China uh, in in 1860. Uh, the Chinese have not forgotten about that. They may not mention it as much now as they did uh, in in previous years, but that's still in the back of their mind. Uh, you have the the what. Uh, what we might call the demographic imbalance along the uh, Sino-Russian border out in the Far East, uh, a sparse population uh, on the Russian side, 6 to 7 million people from this vast area uh, east of Lake Baikal, if you can envision that on a map. And across the border, you have 120 million Chinese. Um, And there's always this concern out in that part of Russia about the Chinese coming uh, over and Um, overwhelming Russia. And I think that's exaggerated, but that's a psychological element as well. Um, There is a a xenophobic, racist element in both societies when they look at one another. Uh, I think that is is an issue. Uh, And then finally, you have this great asymmetry in the trajectory of the two countries. Uh, You know, Russia, we don't think of as a robustly growing uh, economy at this point. It seems to be stagnating. Uh, I think the widespread view in Washington is Russia's power and decline. That's not the way we think about China. Uh, an interesting sort of factoid here, uh, the Russian economies and, and the Chinese economies were roughly the same size in 1990, 1991, the breakup of the Soviet Union. Chinese economy today is about eight times the size of the Russian economy and that gap is growing. Uh, so there's this tremendous asymmetry and it's hard to see the Russians accepting the role of a junior partner to the Chinese uh, over the over the long run. So again, you have, I think, a lot of the current developments that are pushing these two countries together, uh, driven uh, to some extent by U.S. policy, but you also have in this background uh, these sources of tension that could be exploited over the long term.
0: Um, there, there are two questions from the chat that are pretty, pretty similar. They have to deal with the issue of climate change. Um, and and possible on the one hand possible US Russia China cooperation and and you could you know if you speak about climate the climate crisis in, in in particular but possible other areas where these three powers could cooperate but another question really i think drives uh, to a, an interesting point and that is because of Russia's reliance on hydrocarbons um and and the climate issue is this uh, the question is is this a possible uh, a place where China and Russia could come together? Because China does need, is reliant on energy imports.
2: Well, let me let me start with the climate change uh, issue. Um, you know, if we're going to uh, master the, the the climate problem at this point, obviously we're going to have to have some cooperation among uh, the United States, Russia, and China. Uh, we're three of the four greatest emitters uh, of um, Right, uh, uh, of these, uh, uh, the carbons uh, that create part of the problem of, um, of climate change. Um, so there, there's, there's an obvious reason why we need to find a way to cooperate. Now, the challenge always uh, in diplomacy is finding the specific areas of cooperation uh, because the way the climate is going to impact on us differs from country to country. Um, you know, if you look at Russia, um, you know, to what extent is climate change a net negative, to what extent might it be a uh, positive? Uh, you know, on the positive side, if you're sitting in Moscow is uh, a warmer climate, uh, actually it's much preferred to be uh, the climate they've had throughout history. Uh, it's also beginning to open up the northern sea route as the Arctic ice um, uh, recedes. That is potentially a lucrative trade route uh, that the Russians could, um, could develop. It opens up resources uh, under the Arctic shelf that are important for Russia going forward. Again, Russia is still is a, uh, a natural resource dominated economy and it needs access to that to continue its growth. Uh, if you look at China, China has something of a different problem. Uh, and I think is much more serious about combating climate change because of the, uh, the conditions in, uh, in its own cities, uh, the smog and, uh, that has covered Beijing uh, for many, many years. Uh, and has deadly effects uh, on the population. So they're trying to clean that up. And you see them moving away from uh, this reliance on coal as a way of generating uh, energy to, to cleaner fuels. Um, gas in particular, that's where Russia comes in, right? Um, you know, Russia is a source of, uh, a potentially rich source of gas for the Chinese economy. Um, they will be uh, trying to develop that. Oil as well, other hydrocarbons. So yes, I mean hydrocarbons have been a basis uh, of this uh, alignment between uh, Russia and China. I think will continue going forward. So it'll be interesting to see uh, one whether President Putin, President Xi Jinping, show up for this virtual climate summit uh, next next week, uh, and if they do, how they try to position their countries uh, in dealing with this, and the extent to which uh, they uh, make utterances. That suggests that they are going to uh, to work closely with the United States and others in mastering this problem.
0: What are the you know another thing we we hear uh, a lot in in the the talk about Russia and China, United States is the potential or pos- people positing whether uh, a a formal Russian Chinese alliance is possible. Now, I mean, my view on this is that Russia, at least. I don't know about China because I just don't know, but Russia seems very alliance adverse since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, but if not a formal alliance, do you do you see them, do, or do they already work as a block in certain areas?
2: Well, first let's uh, talk about an alliance and what is an alliance. Uh, you know, alliance is, is really a situation in which two or more countries undertake specific obligations to defend one another under certain circumstances, um, and And you're right, I mean, the Russians have been adverse to alliances, uh, certainly since the breakup of the the Soviet Union. The Chinese historically have been adverse to alliances uh, as well. And in the current environment, uh, you know, I think it's quite right that uh, neither one wants to accept full responsibility for the foreign policy of the other country and to come to its defense. Um, You you, if you think about um, Ukraine, for example, uh, in the news most recently. Well, the Chinese have never recognized uh, the Russian annexation of Crimea, a major sore point between us uh, and the Russians. Uh, you know, By the same token, the Russians don't want to be dragged into a conflict over the South, South China Seas. They don't want to get involved in a conflict between uh, China and Japan uh, over the um, Senkaku uh, Islands in in the East China Sea. And so the formula um, that they, they use uh, is not always together, but never against one another. And that's what the strategic alignment is, is that uh, you know we try to work together, we try to be supportive of each other. You see this in the UN Security Council, uh, where they tend to coordinate their positions um, uh, on a regular basis. Uh, you see this in the way they talk about uh, the United States. You see this in the joint statements um, that the issue. So you've got the strategic alignment a set of near-term strategic goals that they share, as far as the organization of the global system is concerned. Uh, you see the strategic alignment, uh, as we've already talked about, uh, in the energy realm: uh, Russia supplier, uh, China consumer. You see the strategic alignment uh, in an effort to enhance the uh, the military capabilities of both countries. Uh, the, the Russians providing. Uh, the Chinese some very sophisticated military equipment, uh, things that the Chinese can't produce at this moment, but almost certainly will be able to produce on their own uh, over the next 10 to 15 years. The, Chin- uh, the Russians are helping the, the Chinese put in place an early warning system for ballistic missiles, uh, which would make China only the third country in the world that has such a system, along with the United States. Uh, and, and Russia and then finally more recently uh, you've begun to see uh, this effort uh, at greater cooperation in space uh, so some talk about uh, a joint effort to build a space station um, maybe some lunar missions and so forth um, so there are a number of things uh, that have grown out of this strategic alignment advance the interest of both countries uh, and I think in their minds make them powers to be reckoned with uh, and raise their significance uh, on the global stage and certainly in the relations
0: with the United States there, there's a couple of questions um around uh, one common theme and that is given the 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 regional orientation of both the Russia-China relationship which is of course Central Asia uh, Southeast Asia, but also South Asia to, to what are, what are their, what is that their relationship to say India and the Middle East? Where, where do they come together or even apart? <laughs> right. Well, yeah, this is a
2: complicated, um, set of issues. Um, and obviously there are areas of agreement, uh, areas, areas of tension. Let's start with central Asia. Um, You know, Central Asia has been in Russia's strategic backyard for 150 years. The Russians still think of it that way. Um, The Chinese within the past decade, however, have become the largest commercial partners of all the the Central Asian states. Uh, You would think that that would raise some concerns in Moscow. I'm sure it does, but they don't rise to the level of the concern that the two countries have about the United States, the role that the United States has played in that region over time. Uh, there's some talk uh, in uh, in Moscow and Beijing of harmonizing. Is the the term they use Russia's Eurasian Economic Union, which is really a protectionist uh, type of uh, economic bloc, uh, and China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is really an expansion, uh, an, an ambitious expansionary project. Now, how you're going to harmonize the two of those, I don't know, uh, but it seems to me that you do come to conflict at some point. Uh, in the future, five, 10, 15 years down the road, but some of this will depend on how the United States positions itself in that part of the world. If you look at uh, India, two very different approaches to India, uh, right? We have, uh, we've had border conflict between the Chinese and the Indians uh, in the recent past, the past uh, past several months. Uh, There's been a history of that uh, over the past, uh, 20 or 30 years. Uh, Russia, uh, by contrast, has enjoyed a very good working relationship uh, with the Indians. They want to maintain that relationship. Um, so how you're going to manage this going forward creates some problems. Uh, and in the Middle East, um, you know, Russia has been the most active player. Uh, and they largely for geopolitical reasons. Uh, the Chinese interest in the Middle East is largely uh, economic, the oil and gas, the energy. Uh, That they want to, uh, that they need to fuel their economy. Now, an interesting uh, element, I know people don't focus on it enough, is that there is an inherent contradiction uh, between China's desire uh, to expand economically, uh, to conquer new markets, which really uh, needs stability uh, if you're going to make good investments. And the Chinese are invested in Eastern Europe, looking at Eastern Europe very directly. The Russians actually see some advantage in instability right, in a place like Ukraine, Belarus, because they don't want um, uh, these regions stabilized in a way that they feel is disadvantageous to Russia's own geopolitical interests. Um, So how that tension is going to play itself out over the long run is something I think that we should be watching.
0: Do you see uh, another, I mean, another area the Chinese have made great inroads in, in economically in particular is Africa uh and you know their Russia's influence in Africa is is nothing like it was of course during the Cold War but it's starting to pay a little bit more attention to it as well and of course we we often hear that the United States too is is turning more at least in terms of security issues more towards Africa what role does is Africa play in this this ch- triangle if any if any great role
2: you you know not a major role at this point I mean clearly the Chinese uh, have been expanding quite uh, aggressively in uh, Africa over the past over the past decade. Uh, its resources. Um, it's also uh, has been a, a place for some of their excess population. So there's a, a significant uh, Chinese diaspora uh, in Africa. Um, so you've got resources, you've got agricultural land, things that are clearly in, in China's interest. Uh, you know, the United States has an interest in uh, Africa's resources as well. Um, we haven't been as aggressive, uh, although we have played a large role on the um, on helping to improve uh, living conditions. Uh, you know, the administration that I work for uh, was very active uh, in helping uh, Africans deal with the AIDS crisis, uh, for example, and President Bush thought uh, very much of that was a, a signature program uh, for him, um, and so there is competition uh, there, but certainly I'm not to the extent that we see in in places like East Asia, uh, for example. Now, the Russians uh, are back in in Africa. Uh, The question that I have as I look at this is how much of this is driven by uh, genuine national interest and how much of it is driven by more parochial concerns uh, that is certain individuals who may be close to to Putin uh, are uh, engaged in Africa because of the mineral deposits. This is a way to enrich themselves. Um, I think that's an aspect of it. So I don't see the the tremendous Russian national interest in Africa. Uh, I think it's driven more by parochial interest in both China and the United States. There is a national interest, I think, clearly defined, although this is uh, by no stretch of the imagination, the main arena of competition between our two countries.
0: I want to shift gears a little bit uh, and... And have you talk about, you know, over the last several years, uh, Russia and China have had an increasing presence in U.S. domestic politics. Um, I don't think I need to go through all of the reasons why. Uh, But in what ways does domestic, U.S. domestic politics shape or drive uh, American policy towards Russia and China?
2: Well, it plays a significant role. Uh, This is uh, one of the central aspects of uh, of a democratic society. Uh, An administration cannot pursue a foreign policy or sustain a foreign policy over the long run unless it enjoys domestic political support. Now, I think you see that most clearly uh, in the way that we're dealing with Russia. Uh, There is a a widespread view uh, in the United States that Russia, one, uh, is a rival, uh, two that has interfered in our domestic politics uh, in in harmful ways, uh, and there is a obviously I think on the uh, on the Capitol Hill uh, a real pressure for the administration to be tough with Russia. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons you saw the sanctions issued uh, yesterday. Uh, the Biden administration uh, wanting to differentiate itself very clearly from the Trump administration. Uh, It is levying sanctions, making Russia pay a cost, is the way it would put it, uh, for things that uh, Russia did uh, during the past administration. Um, And I think to the applause of people on the Hill. In fact, I imagine what you'll see, uh, if anything, uh, if there's any criticisms that the administration wasn't tough enough. But in any event, there is a a general predisposition that we need to be tough on the Russians, that they are real problems. Uh, And that is something that has been of long standing, I think goes back Uh, certainly to the the tail end of the Bush administration after the Russian incursion in Georgia in 2008. Um, And it has a long history since many of us still remember the Cold War, uh, right? Uh, uh, So happy memories about a rivalry uh, with the Russia in the guise of the Soviet Union. Uh, With China, the concern has grown more recently uh, in part because of uh, the rapid rise of China. It's more assertive policy uh, uh, you know, American business uh, for many years wanted to be invested in uh, in China, acted as a ballast uh, sort of this relationship. Well, the views of uh, many American businessmen have changed uh, over the past couple of years as they see the Chinese being more aggressive uh, in, as they would say, stealing their technology, uh, putting pressure on them uh, to hand over sensitive technology. Uh, uh, the Chinese uh, favoring their companies and joint ventures and so forth. So now we have a, a we've seen the formation of a, uh, I think a broader coalition in the United States that thinks that we need to seriously push back against China. Uh, that is driving some of our policy. Uh, but there's also a sense that this is a big growing economy. you have got to treat this country uh, with tremendous care. And so there's a much more cautious and I think careful, deliberate approach to China uh, when this is discussed on the Hill and the American public. And we see, see with regard to, to Russia, which is seen as a rival, but also as a country in decline.
0: Now, you uh, are the director in the, in the Kissinger Associates and, and a lot of um, reform, you know, there's a lot of reflection on the Russia-China-U.S. relationship today, and of course, that inevitably brings a lot of people back to reflect on the Kissinger-Nixon approach to both China and the Soviet Union. Um, what lessons, and do we can we get from that previous, you know, uh, approach towards the Soviet Union and China that Nixon and and Kissinger um, put forward?
2: Okay, let me sort of go quickly through the history uh, of this. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, uh, but you know, the Nixon and, and Kissinger were, were trying to deal with three strategic problems for the United States at, at that time. They were concerned about the exit from Vietnam. Uh, they were concerned about how you manage Russia's uh, nuclear parity with the United States. Uh, and they were concerned about creating stil- stability uh, in East Asia, the Western Pacific. Uh, and I saw that this growing tension between the Soviet Union and China, there have been border clashes uh, along the, uh, in, in 1969, for example, creating an opening where you could try to use each con- country to help uh, you enhance your position vis-a-vis the other. Now, uh, if you go back and read Kissinger, I think this is one of the lessons, didn't I uh, was always said that he didn't play a China card. Um, this wasn't you know, trying to use China uh, directly against the, uh, the Soviet Union. It was a much more subtle policy uh, than that. What he tried to do uh, was to get each country interested in improving relations with the United States out of fear that the United States would align with the other country uh, and create a, a strategic nightmare. Uh, for the other. Uh, and so, one of the lessons that you, you draw from this is that if you're going to use this type of uh, diplomacy effectively, in fact, all three countries in this triangle have to believe they're drawing some benefit from it. Uh, I think, certainly, if you look at the, uh, the balance sheet, the United States uh, got the, the biggest benefits out of this. We got our, our arms control agreements. We got the exit from Vietnam that we were looking uh, for at that point. I think Kissinger is quite right that we uh, managed to position ourselves uh, globally in a much better position uh, than we had been three or four years previously. But the Russians and the Chinese also got something out of uh, out of this. Uh, the, China, the Russians got our recognition of their geopolitical uh, uh, advance in Europe after the Second World War, recognition uh, the Soviet bloc sort of as a sphere of influence. Uh, the Chinese got some help uh, in dealing with the Russian problem to the north, but also they saw the United States distance itself from Taiwan. Um, so as long as each country believes it's gaining some advantage of this, you can continue to push it. And the diplomatic challenge is to make sure that you're deriving more benefit uh, from this relationship than anyone else. The second lesson is that if you're going to do that, you need to be the pivot country. That is, you need to enjoy better relations with each capital, with Beijing and, and Moscow, than they enjoy uh, between themselves. And the final point is, uh, and this is a, a lesson for all, is that you need to know what you want, what you're trying to accomplish, right? There needs to be a strategic design uh, that this fits into. Uh, it's not something that you just can play with and expect to come up with, um, with positive results.
0: What what would what would you suggest be the approach be to Russia and China from the American perspective? What what do you think the United States would want out of this these relationships?
2: Well, look. I mean, the first point that I would make is that we need to deal uh, with Russia and China in tandem. We need do need to see them as uh, as strategic allies uh, or strategic uh, not strategic allies, but that they that together that they do have greater impact on global affairs in ways that uh, have consequences for American national interest. Now, we don't see it that way. Uh, We still tend to deal with these countries in silos. Again, if you look at the uh, the most recent uh, interim national security strategy guidance that was issued at the beginning of March, uh, if you listen to what the president has said, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has said, um, you know, clearly we're worried about China, um, but Russia, if it gets mentioned, gets mentioned as a as a threat of some sort. But we never talk about the two uh, uh, together as a an additional threat that we need to, to deal with. So we need to develop the, the, the policy in tandem. Now, uh, there are pluses and minuses uh, as you look at this. On the positive side, uh, we need to work with the. Uh, with the Russians to try to bring the Chinese into what we would call strategic stability talks. Um, talks about nuclear arms control, something the Chinese have resisted uh, for, for years, in part because they believe they're in an inferior position. Uh, but clearly they are a, a major and growing element of the strategic environment, the strategic nuclear uh, environment at, at this point, point. Uh, and we need to find a way to bring them in. Uh, Russia has to be our partner uh, in that regard. We've already talked about climate change. Um, these are three countries that need to find a way to work together uh, on, on climate change. So we ought to be thinking about how we can work with each of those countries, in fact, to encourage the other country um, to be more serious uh, about its its climate change uh, responsibilities. Um, there are questions about um, sort of energy markets going forward as well, where. Uh, some sort of cooperation between these three countries is going to be instrumental. On um, sort of the negative side, is we need to think about how these two countries amplify each other in the Security Council. Uh, you know, certainly we don't want to drive these countries uh, more closely together, uh, and that's something that our sanctions policy towards Russia has done, uh, our very sort of harsh rhetoric towards the Chinese is doing at this point. Uh, that is not to our advantage. I remember that one of the axioms of American foreign policy uh, since the beginning of the 19th century is prevent a hostile power from dominating either East Asia or Europe you know these two main industrial zones uh, uh, two of the three largest the other being North America and so bringing Russia and China together this dynamically growing economy, uh, in China, along with this resource base in Russia, ought to be one of our greatest nightmares going forward. So, uh, you, know, I need, you know, we need to think about this in tandem. We need to think about how we uh, slow down uh, the development of the strategic alignment. We're not going to be able to divide these two countries. A crude policy to, to do that would backfire, uh, but we have no interest in pushing them closer together by the policies we pursue either towards Moscow or towards Beijing.
0: Um, you mentioned earlier that she uh, and Putin have a, a close relationship, a personal relationship. Um, and a lot of uh, foreign policy rhetoric uh, in the United States tends to be highly personalized, right? We, we speak of Putin, not necessarily a larger foreign policy establishment in Russia, um, i would imagine that in as we move forward more personalization of, of xi with the chinese system what are some of the the issues that go along with this personalization of the relationship and the conflict
2: well look i mean i always think it's uh it's wrong to personalize uh, foreign policy particularly when you're dealing with uh, with major countries with long histories uh, you know, we need to understand that China and Russia uh, do indeed have national interest. Uh, the way they think about their national interest rose out of a, a long history of dealing with the outside world, dealing with the specific uh, elements of the geopolitical challenges that each country uh, faces. Part of that is uh, obviously um, based on their, uh, their geographic location. Uh, it's based on what their neighbors are and how they've interacted with their neighbors over time. Uh, When we personalize the relationship, uh, we delude ourselves into thinking that a change in leadership is going to uh, take take the problem away, make it vanish. Um, So there's tremendous hope that, well, uh, you know, Putin Putin is really the problem. Uh, And once Putin is gone, we can take our relationship with Russia uh, in a different direction. Uh, There's a danger that you think that uh, you know, the problem really is she, Xi, uh, Xi Jinping, and once he's gone, well, that will open up all sorts of different possibilities and we can put this relationship on a, uh, on a more productive track. Uh, we have and we need to recognize that we have Russia problems and China problems, Russia challenge uh, and a China challenge, uh, and that requires, uh, I think, much more creative thinking. Uh, it, it requires us to put in place a policy that we can sustain over over many years, uh, regardless of who the, the face of China or the face of Russia is on, on the global stage. And that means that you have to have a much deeper understanding uh, of how the system works, um, how popular attitudes are developing and will drive foreign policy uh, over the long term. Uh, try to find uh, those factions or those elements of society uh, that... Uh, are more positive uh, from the standpoint of American national interest and begin to think about um, not so much how uh, the United States could help them uh, advance, because I think it never makes sense for us to get too deeply involved in the foreign and domestic politics of other countries, Uh, but something that we watch uh, very closely to see if opportunities arise that we can take advantage of uh, that will Uh, put relations on more constructive tracks, uh, advance American interests.
0: The one uh, major player that we haven't talked about is Europe and where they fall in this, because on the one hand, the Europeans have to live there, that is with Russia on its border. And then they're, they're, you know, relationship with China isn't one of incredible tension. You know, China is far away. They have economic relationships, but it doesn't really pose a security issue for, for the Europeans. So uh, where did the Europeans sit in this triangle? Well, it's not a triangle with
2: the Europeans. It becomes well, a, they might sit <laughs> <this right> t- <laughs> outside of uh, it. Right rectangle right. or something like that. Uh, but look, I mean, uh, the Europeans are important players here. Uh, you know, this administration... Uh, has made, uh, or set as a priority, restoring uh, our alliances after what they consider to be the the four disruptive years uh, of the Trump administration. Uh, And, uh, you know, Europe is going to play a role in both our policy towards Russia and our policy towards China. Uh, Now, uh, with with Russia, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, Europe is in a different um, geopolitical situation. Uh, they are neighbors. Uh, they've had a, a, a different historical experience with Russia. And obviously, this varies among the countries uh, of Europe as well. But if you think about Germany, uh, Germany has had an uneven relationship with Russia, uh, but it's been uh, driven into, the, uh, uh, into the, the German mentality that you need to maintain some sort of ties with Russia, that you have to talk to the Russians. Um, and so you can push back on, on geopolitical things that you find uh, uh, unfavorable, unsavory, that the Russians are doing um, so opposition to what the Russians are doing in Ukraine. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you want to maintain uh, commercial relations. Um, getting energy from Russia uh, is important to Europe going forward. So the German support Nord Stream too. Um, that you know the administration, not the administration so much, but Congress is so eager to sanction. Um, and interesting enough, you've seen. Uh, this administration hesitate uh, to show some reluctance to sanction European firms for working on Nord Stream 2. I think in part because Germany is our key European ally. Germany wants this to go forward. And so there's going to have to be some sort of bargain uh, that is going to allow this to go forward. Second, uh, the Europeans are going to demand that the uh, that Washington pay more attention to Russia and I think the uh, than the administration would be inclined to do because Russia is a a top priority for them. So the alliance uh, requires a much more sustained effort uh, in dealing with Russia than I think the administration anticipated. Now, when you think about China, uh, it's a different situation, but but Europe in many ways is going to become the battlefield uh, between the United States and China on technology, right? We've already seen that. uh, as we put, uh, as Europe builds these 5G networks, uh, and the United States being very opposed uh, to allowing Huawei, a Chinese company, uh, to be centrally involved in the construction of those uh, of those grids, in part because of the security concerns that the United States sees. Now, European attitudes are changing, uh, but they certainly don't have the same uh, negative reaction to Huawei that we do, so there's a lot, um, that we're going to have to work with going forward. And I think finally, this is going to be, as I've already said, uh, this major battlefield over a new technology, how we set technological standards, whether it's going to be standards, Western standards, Chinese standards, uh, or not. And the the Europeans are going to play a great role uh, in in making that decision. Um, Final point is that the Europeans do see the commercial relationship with China as important Uh, It's not by accident that they signed some sort of free trade agreement uh, with the with the Chinese uh, on the eve of Biden's inauguration, which is just a, uh, I think, setting down a marker, but that they have interest as well, that the United States is going to have to deal with those interests uh, responsibly and constructively if we're going to build a common uh, policy towards China over the next over the next three, four or five years.
0: So there are a lot of questions. So I'm kind of I'm trying to combine several of them uh, into one. And and one I think would be a couple of the hot hotspots uh, that certainly the United States is interested in in vis-a-vis uh, China and Russia, um, Taiwan and Hong Kong and issues of democracy, human rights. Of course, of course, the Uyghurs and and um, um, God, I'm, I'm blanking. Sorry, the Uyghur issue in in no- northwestern China. Uh, also in Russia, of course, we have the issue with Alexei Navalny, but also Eastern Ukraine is is a big one. Crimea. What should what do you what is your opinion of the American um, uh, approach to these issues?
2: <laughs> well, it's there are a, whole, a whole range of
0: issues that we approach uh,
2: You know, you know, one of the difficult challenges uh, in, in, in any diplomacy uh, is carefully calculating what you af- actually can do, what the chances for success are. Uh, you know, I think certainly when you're dealing with um, with human rights issues, uh, the first principle should be to do no harm. Uh, so don't act in a way that actually makes the situation uh, worse inside another country. Be aware of your the limitations, um, and that has, I think, applications both in the valmy case. Uh, Uh, and the Uyghur case. Now, I mean, both of these are outrageous. Um, We do, uh, I think, owe it to ourselves. We owe it to uh, um, our our allies um, to demonstrate that we do have certain principles. Uh, So the Chinese are rightly condemned for what they're doing uh, in uh, Northwest China with the Uyghurs. Uh, The Russians are rightly condemned for the way uh, that they, they deal with Navalny. But we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking uh, that we are going to have a tremendous impact on the way they're going to handle those issues, certainly not in the short run. Um, And so there's a limited amount we can do. Um, There's a limited amount of ways we can put pressure on. But at the end of the day, these two countries are going to govern themselves internally uh, the way they see fit. I think, unfortunately, some of the same uh, applies to to Hong Kong uh, at this point, given uh, uh, where the Chinese are, uh, given the, the heavy presence they have already. Again, do we need to protest? Um, do we need to make clear to uh, the Chinese what the implications are for Hong Kong as a financial center and so forth? Absolutely. Uh, but again, we shouldn't delude ourselves into believing that we have tremendous influence over what the Chinese are going to. Taiwan is something different uh, because this ha- you know, it is separated from, from the Chinese mainland. Uh, It is a robustly growing uh, economy at this point. Uh, It has a population uh, that uh, thinks of itself more as Taiwanese now than it does Chinese. Uh, And we have some assets that we can uh, bring to bear. Uh, And I think what you're going to see over the next uh, several years, we'll we'll have to do this in a delicate way, uh, is closer uh, relationship, uh, US-Taiwanese relationship. clear indications that, uh, that the United States is prepared to defend uh, Taiwan against a, a direct Chinese military assault on the island um, as a way of sort of bolstering China. Uh, excuse me, Taiwan as a sovereign, uh, independent country uh, on the global stage. I think that's the right way to approach here. We can have some uh, greater impact. Ukraine uh, is a whole different uh, kettle of fish. Uh, And I hear the challenge is uh, to find a way uh, where we can accommodate Russian interest without jeopardizing our own. Uh, We can find a way uh, to sort of take Ukraine out of this geopolitical context, our contest between the West uh, and Russia, so that Ukraine can focus on its very real domestic problem. Political, economic, and so forth. You know what we should want over the long term uh, is a competent, effective, prosperous uh, Ukraine. Um, it's very difficult to take the necessary steps if you're in a conflict with another country. That sort of takes all the oxygen out of the room. So finding a, a way um, that sort of uh, doesn't upset. Uh, or create greater conflict in the East at this point. Uh, getting the focus on Ukraine's domestic issues is the way to go, and I think that is going to require some accommodation with the Russians uh, beyond what um, uh, many people in Washington think is desirable at this point.
0: Um, there's a question about Latin America, and I don't know if you can speak to uh, Chinese Russian interests in Latin America, but it certainly would be important one. I mean, Russia's, um, you know, support for Venezuela on the one hand, uh, Chinese, Chinese economic interests, but, but other concerns. And of course this is, you know, traditionally in American spheres of influence. So what, uh, what can you say about the Latin America as another space of, of tension and conflict?
2: Well, I mean, obviously, we are concerned about the Chinese economic advance uh, and investments in uh, in Latin America. Uh, at this point, um, again, it's uh, you know we are still by far the dominant country uh, in, in the hemisphere. We're much more important uh, to uh, the countries of Latin America uh, than the Chinese are at uh, at this point. But I think we need, uh, but we are concerned about their investment. We need to, we need to keep a close eye on that. Uh, to make sure that it doesn't get out of hand, we need to think about how we uh, improve our relations with all the countries uh, of the region. Uh, you know, Russia again is um, not a major player uh, uh, in in Latin America. You know, it's not going to invest a lot of money in America, uh, in Latin America. It, you know, it tends to get involved in um, in countries that. Uh, are neuralgic for the United States, right? Cuba, uh, and now Venezuela. Uh, But if we were honest with ourselves, um, I think we would come to the conclusion that the problems we're having with Venezuela are not because of the Russians, um, uh, fundamentally. It's a problem uh, that we have directly with the Venezuelans, uh, and also um, uh, acknowledge that our policy perhaps hasn't been the most uh, effective over the past. Uh, over the past four uh, four years or more, that we haven't understood the nature uh, of the problem there, and we haven't devised a policy that has a chance of success uh, in opening up that country in a way that would be productive, both for the Venezuelans themselves, but obviously for the neighboring regions. So I I think we tend to use the Russians when it comes to Venezuela as an excuse for the failures of our own policy, as opposed to undertaking uh, the very sort of hard assessment, uh, look at ourselves, uh, and see where we can make changes that would lead to a much more effective uh, approach to Venezuela.
0: One last question: What are you What are you going to be paying attention to as as we move forward? What are some of the issues that you're focusing on?
2: Well, uh, you know the whole range of issues. I mean, obviously the uh, the sino-Russian uh, strategic alignment is a big issue, and how that develops over time uh, to see uh, how close they move towards. Um, um, a a strategic defensive alliance, uh, which would be, I think, uh, extremely uh, disadvantaged for American national interest. Uh, Also to see where there are uh, possible fissures uh, between those two countries and an in-depth policy uh, could actually uh, use in ways that would uh, attenuate the strategic alignment uh, between our two countries. So that's uh, one of the big issues. Uh, we're going to look clearly at, uh, uh, at China's technological development um, and I think we have an interest uh, going forward in working with our allies to ensure uh, that you know, the, the, the emerging technology is developed along Western standards, uh, not standards that are developed by the Chinese. Um, I think that's an, uh, an important element of our own um, uh, power and authority on the global stage. Uh, but also, I think is better for us and um, millions of people in Europe and East Asia uh, over the long term. So we're we'll looking at that, and obviously there are areas of um, well. I mean, another the Arctic um, clearly is going to be of growing importance um, as the uh, as the Arctic ice recedes. Uh, there are a lot of very important economic, commercial, and geopolitical issues uh, that we need to consider. Um, China and Russia are not natural allies uh, in this region. Uh, So that's another area where a much more effective policy on the part of the United States could bring us benefits uh, in attenuating the uh, the Russia-China strategic alignment.
0: So those are the types of things that I would be focusing on going forward. You've been listening to Thomas Graham. Thomas Graham is the managing director at Kissinger Associates, where he focuses on Russian and Eurasian affairs. He was a special assistant to President George W. Bush and senior director for Russia on the National Security Council staff from 2004 to 2007 and director of Russian affairs on that staff from 2002 to 2004. From 2001 to 2002, he served as the associate director of the policy planning staff for the U.S. State Department. And from 1984 to 1998, he was a foreign service officer, mostly serving in the embassy in Moscow so uh amy we just heard this interview with tom Uh, why don't you give some thoughts of what you thought about it
1: yeah i thought that was a really great interview and i'm so glad that you had him on the show um my big takeaway was this idea that the cold war paradigm is no longer useful for looking at international relations um countries as tom says countries are a lot more flexible they're operating differently than they used to um it's there's not so much this geopolitical battle for an ideology. It's more about economics and shaping this global environment. And so I find it really fascinating. Um, Like, what is the future going to look like? How are we going to talk about this time period in the future as we break away from the, the Cold War kind of way of thinking about things?
0: Yeah, I think that's what uh, one of the big issues is, is that um, some people and I've talked to others, interviewed others on these issues and I think one of the consensus things that I take away is that this is really a period of transition for the global order because the Cold War binary framework doesn't work. You have a lot of emerging new powers, you know, China being the main one, but you also have countries like India, you have uh, Brazil, you have, you know, other regional and international players now. And so, you know, I think the Cold War kind of still functions in people's minds. Especially since people like Tom and his generation, and he talks about this, came up during the Cold War. So it's hard for them to disassociate themselves from that thinking. So I think it's going to take a bit of a change in thought.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that, you know, as that generation was raised with this mindset, they passed it on to their children and to the next generation and so it's going to be really interesting to see how we break away from that
0: right definitely so those listening out there to tom's interview if you find it interesting please comment on the blog post on the srbpodcast.org for this interview uh, or you know share your thoughts shoot me an email in the the, uh, contact section of the website Uh, i'd like to hear from listeners and maybe we'll include some of your comments in a future episode Uh, You've been listening to the SRB Podcast. I'm the host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by uh, Amelia Parler, who's my new intern at the SRB Podcast. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org. Until next week, bye.